What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD podcast. Tonight, we have a DTD all-star, Don Bentley, Apache pilot, FBI agent, number one best-selling author, and he's here to talk about his book that launches tomorrow. It's in the Tom Clancy universe. It's called Target Acquired, and I got to tell you, it is out of this world. Don, welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me back, especially since you just had me two months ago. I thought maybe you'd get tired of me, so I, was, I had my fingers crossed that I'd make the cut again this time. I could never do that, uh, especially with these books. <laughs> like, I don't know, when we talked on the first one and you said it took you three books to get going, I'm telling you, that engine got <laughs> revved right then and everything kind of took over from there. I appreciate you saying it. It was this target acquired is was a ton of fun to write, but but the hardest hardest book I've ever written to. So for you to to say that you liked it and stuff means a lot because I I kind of left it all on the field with that one for sure. Yeah, and you know we talked the first time and we we talked about Rainbow Six and without sanction yep. and some stuff that was coming out yep. and and so far of all the Tom Clancy. Probably Clear and Present Danger, Rainbow Six was my favorite. But yep. I'm telling you, yep. you took those characters from Rainbow Six and from Clear and Present Danger and gave them a whole new life. You 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 brought them to life in a completely different way than they've ever been brought in a book. I really appreciate you saying that. You know, when you when I got the opportunity to write this book, it was um, kind of two things. It was and incredibly like, holy cow, I can't believe I get to do this. And at the same time, it was like, holy cow, I got to do this. And so I was, you know, the, the folks that the folks that wrote before me. So Mike Madden wrote a number of the Jack Ryan Jr. books. His last one was Firing Point. Um, Mark Cameron writes the Jack Ryan Sr. books. Um, Mark Graney wrote both with Tom Clancy and then wrote the first book after Tom died and wrote both the senior and junior and the, and, and not to mention obviously Tom Clancy himself, who was when I was 13 or 14 years old, my buddy down the street gave me a copy of red storm rising. And that was kind of my introduction to this genre and my introduction to Tom Clancy. And just to get a chance to, the only thing I can equate it to is if you were a screenplay writer and, and or a director and somebody said, Hey, do you want to make a star Wars movie? Like for me, the Clancy universe has that level of, regard or esteem and so when you get a chance to do that you know it's awe-inspiring and terrifying at the same time you know my my buddy josh hood writes um for one of the robert ludlum series and he kind of equated it to somebody tossing you the keys to a ferrari and saying go have a good time but don't bring it back with any new scratches on it right and so that's kind of what you're feeling and so what i did um once i got done hyperventilating and realizing i was going to have to get to and going to have to write a tom clancy book is i really went back to to try and find for back of lack of a better term my first love like what was it when i was a kid and when i was in my late teens and early 20s and reading those first tom clancy books that just captured me and made me into that reader and so i i went back and reread like Cardinal in the, in the Kremlin and in the sum of all fears and dead of honor and stuff like that to try and recage myself and remember what I lived loved about Clancy. And I actually, I have a little writer's notebook that I keep notes and stuff in. And I actually had a page 
and the heading was cool stuff Clancy does. And I would make notes in there and, and say, because, you know, when I was, and I've told this story before, and I apologize if I've told it with you before, but I remember one of the things that so gripped me about Red Storm Rising is there's that scene where that F-14 is doing these strafing runs on that Russian tanker that's that's docked outside. And I can't remember if it was Iceland or Greenland or where it was. And I just remember reading that passage and setting the book down and thinking, you know, I know it was just a story, but for a minute there, I could have sworn I was sitting in the front seat of that F-14. And so, you know, rereading that and then rereading um, Clear and Present Danger is Ding Chavez's origin story, right? It's where John Clark goes and finds him and recruits him and, and brings him in to to um, eventually what becomes um, his his path in the CIA. And since it was my first time writing Jack Ryan Jr., I really, and the same thing with Cardinal and the Kremlin, I think that may be the first one where Mary Pat Foley um, makes her debut, or if not, it's certainly the one that's solely focused on her, where she's running an asset in the Kremlin and she does this crazy, at her kid's hockey game, she does this brush pass with her asset, you know, and just these iconic scenes with iconic characters. And I really wanted to, to get back to that, to the things that I loved about that series. And at the same time, take that fresh look and say, hey, this is my, maybe it's my one chance ever to write a Clancy book. And so if what could be my contribution to this incredible universe, this in, incredible, you know, collection of works, and it was very much a, a purposely focus on looking at those characters, not from a new point, but remembering what I loved about them as a young reader and then trying to to transfer that into Target Acquired and to have, you know, maybe a, diff, a, a fresh perspective or a new perspective that says, hey, I want to honor the legacy of all the great folks who have written before me and the work that they did. But what could I bring that's maybe a different look at it or a different feel for it? And that's absolutely what I tried to do with Target Acquired. So let's talk about that for a minute. You, we have a lot of literary characters that have kind of spawned yeah. lives over and over and over. Um, yep. The biggest one yep. I can think of is is it's a comic book, but Batman has spawned so many different lives, yep. so many different characters, so many different yep. people have played Bruce Wayne. Uh Yep. We look at the same with James Bond, things like that, where these stories. Yep. And I think what I liked the most about yours was because I think we would agree when you read a Tom Clancy book, it is very um, it's textured, layered, but it's also very technical. Um, and yep. and if you don't pay attention to the technicals, you might miss something. What I liked about yours is. Yep is you talk about the technicals, but you do it in a way that everyone can understand, whether you've ever seen that kind of weapon yeah. system, whether you've ever seen that kind of military or anything, you really explain. And I yep. think the best example of that would be when you talk about the Shin Bet in this move, in this book, um, yeah. because you really explain who they are, how they operate, what they're all about. And yep. by, by the end of it, you really know what it's about. And you see a lot of different characters uh, that kind of evolve from that. So I'm wondering, yep. Yep. when you go into this process and, and you have to take over these characters like Jack Ryan Jr. Now, of course, he's mm -hmm. a smaller character than Senior and everything. Um, there's been yep. more written yep. about Senior. How do you go into yep. it without messing up the legacy 
and making kind of your own legacy on that so that people remember, man, Don wrote that book and it was awesome. Yeah. Well, I, again, I appreciate you asking that. And I think the one thing I would, I would correct and or, or would add a different take to what you just said before I answered is that I, well, I certainly hope folks love this book. My first, um, duty or responsibility, if you will, is that people read it and say, that's an awesome Tom Clancy book. Like it belongs in the Tom Clancy universe. And if they remember I wrote it, that's fantastic. But my, the whole thing I wanted to do going into this is just say, here is my offering, if you will, to the Clancy um, universe. And, and so hopefully people read that and say, that's a fantastic book and it belongs there. But to answer your question, it is something it is something that I struggled with quite a bit just from again kind of that that sense of responsibility of what that you're really standing on the shoulder of giants right and that they have have built these characters some of them Tom built some of them Mark Graney built some of them the other you know writers design and that you want to do them justice and do the plot line justice while at the same time kind of bring in something new or a fresh look to it and that's why and I've, I've talked to you um, when I've been on your show before about Tom Colgan and what an incredible editor he is, he really is um, the training wheels or the left and right limit or or the the guardrails for this series. And so when you come up with ideas or come up with, here's what I want to do, or even once you finish, he's the one that serves as the glue that goes through that and says, yes, um, this, this matches um, with what's been done before or this scene, one of the scenes um, that I wrote, as you know, I, I write another series uh, with a protagonist called Matt Drake, and it's a first-person protagonist that's um, kind of a witty guy that's also can be kind of sarcastic or snarky. And so one of the scenes I, I wrote for Target Acquired in which Jack Ryan Jr. is calling back to John Clark to tell him what's going on, and and John Clark asked him to do something that Jack Ryan doesn't think he should. My, my first um, variation of that scene was much more of a Matt Drake talking to John Clark, frankly. And and Tom came in with that, rightfully so. And he said, hey, this is a great scene, but this is not Jack Ryan Jr. This is Matt Drake, your protagonist. Here is who John Clark is. Remember the sense of awe that Jack Ryan Jr. holds him in. Remember the iconic status that John Clark has in this legacy. And I want you to go back and look at the scene. And he was absolutely right. And so he serves as, like I said, kind of your your training wheels for that. The other thing he does is he gives you the tremendous freedom to explore things so you don't feel like a lot of times in these big series like this, if you're not careful, it can start to feel episodic, right? Where it's just here is, you know, it's it's kind of like my kids, you know, you are I know we're gonna get to 80s a little bit later, but my kids <laughs> Um, discovered the A-Team and, and Knight Rider and Airwolf and everything a couple of years ago. And they were enthralled with the A-Team for about a week. And then they quit watching. And I asked my son why. And he's like, it's the same thing every week, right? This shows up, BA does this. They, And so what you don't want to do, you want to give readers what they love about the series without it feeling like it's just the next episode in the Clancy thing. And so when I got the opportunity to do this, what I pitched to Tom was – hey, what if we purpose, purposefully just neck down the book so it focused almost exclusively on Jack Ryan Jr.? And I wanted to do that for two reasons. One, 
it would afford me as a new writer the opportunity to kind of climb into his head and make and learn and explore a little bit more about what makes him tick. Where is he in his life right now? What are some of the things he hasn't had a chance to talk about? And frankly, what are the things that he's given up to get where he is right now? And what is that costing him, right? And, and to dive a little deeper into that characterization from one standpoint. And the second standpoint, um, Mark Cameron, who writes the, the Jack Ryan Senior series, Tom was telling me about a conversation that he and Mark had and in, in, in which book this um, pertains to escapes me right now. But kind of their thesis for the book coming in is what would happen if Jack Ryan Sr., who's president, you know, when you're president, obviously there are a lot of things that that come as perks to that job when you're dealing with, you know, bad things happening halfway across the world. But what if that worked to his detriment? What if there was a scenario where being president was actually detrimental to the problem that Jack was trying to solve? And so I kind of snatched that and said, what if we applied the same thing to Jack Ryan Jr.? What if, you know, in, in the rest of the books, he has the campus resources and all these legacy characters and stuff. And what if we made the campus inaccessible to him? And so all of the things he typically relies on to go about his business, what if he couldn't do that? And we just necked it down to just be on him. And so then what that, what that gave you with Target Acquired was a book that stretches him in, in probably ways um, Tom Clancy maybe never envisioned him being stretched and, and, but kind of gives him a, not a fresh start, but a different look at here is Jack Ryan Jr. on his own trying to, you know, to solve this tremendous problem. And he doesn't have any of the things that he's relied on before. What does that look like? And so that's what I kind of went in with it in mind. And, and it helped me explore him and frankly, some of the other characters a little bit deeper while knowing that Tom Colgan is the one standing back there backstopping me. So if I take it too far in one direction, he's like, uh-uh, this doesn't like the scene we just talked about. Or conversely, if I have this crazy idea, I can go to him and he can say, yeah, yeah, I think we can work with that. That hasn't been done before. And so it really, as a writer... My buddy, um, John Dixon's a fantastic writer too. And he was a golden glove boxer and he boxed, uh, went to Penn state on a boxing scholarship. And he said to me once that the referee's job in a boxing match is to protect you. So you don't have to worry about hurting the other guy. That's not your responsibility anymore. You're just there to fight. The referee is there to make sure the other guy doesn't get hurt. And so I felt like very much like that's what Tom Colgan did to me is like, man, just go in there go do something crazy and I'll make sure the series doesn't get hurt. If you take it too far one way or the other. Well, and I, I don't think you, I don't think you took it too far. I will disagree with you a little bit. I, I felt a little bit of Matt sure. Drake in there. There was uh there was some good <laughs> stuff. There was some good uh kind of back and forth in there that I really yeah. loved in, in the Matt Drake books that, that I think you pulled over. And I think that's a great thing to pull over. Sure. You did it in small form, but there's a couple times yeah. when uh, <clears throat> Jack is talking to the Shin Bet. Uh, there's a couple yeah. times where he's talking yeah, to yeah. the heads of other governments where he's telling them they don't have Jack shit. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed that yeah. because I think it pushes the story along because you, yeah. you make it uh, where it's a whole new world for people that have never read either any of your books yeah. or your Tom Clancy books but you suck them right yep. in and they have, they know what's going on in the world without skipping a beat. Yep. 
And yep. so it, yeah. it says that over and over. And I, I really like that you always mention uh, the campus and stuff, but that he can't, he can't yep. use anything. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And that's another thing. Um, and, and I appreciate you saying that. And, and that's another thing that when, when early on we got it worked out that I was going to get to, to write this book, Tom Colgan sat me down and he's like, listen, your job is not to be Tom Clancy or to try and write like Tom. He's like, nobody can write like Tom. He's like, I chose you because I love your Matt and Drake series. And I want you to bring that style of writing to this. And so to your point, very much, he made clear, he's like, I want you to write like you, but write in this universe. And so I, I did, as, as you allude to, um, there is some of, of how I write Matt Drake and some of those type of scenes that are coming in here. But what, what I was trying to say before and didn't do a very good job of it is that your when you come in to write that you do want to bring your particular writing style, but you also want to stay true to the characters as they are. So it's not that, you know, Jack Ryan Jr. or Sr. or Mary Pat Foley or John Clark becomes unrecognizable from one writer to the next. Like that should stay seamless to the reader because that's why the reader's coming back. That's why we all come back to good books and good stories is to see the characters, right? And so it's fine, I think, to explore new aspects of the characters or different versions, but it shouldn't be like, this is Don Bentley's version of Jack Ryan Jr. and this is Mark Graney's or somebody else. Like It's our job to stay true to Tom Clancy's version of Jack Ryan Jr. while we bring our own individual writing styles to the series, hopefully. So I have a question that came in since this is a live show. We haven't done this together before. <laughs> it says, Don, what's your favorite Clancy novel? Just Tom's writing. Man, it is. I. It's really hard for me to answer that because the two that are the most influential, I love Hunt for the Red October just like everybody does. But Red Storm Rising, like I said before, was kind of my gateway drug to the Clancy universe. And that'll always hold um, a huge place in my heart for it. But man, without remorse, what he did in without remorse and Jack Clark's or John Clark's origin story still to this day, when we, when you talk to people and they're like, Oh, the decompression chamber. And that was, you know, that's gritty and on the edge now, let alone when Tom Clancy wrote it, you know, three decades ago or, or more than that. And so I'd say without remorse and um, and Red Storm Rising are, are my two favorite Clancy ones. Well, speaking of without remorse, uh, there's been recently a movie that's been added to Amazon. Uh, it's sure. kind of caught um, kind of mixed reviews, if, if you really think about it. Yeah. Um, have you had a chance to see the movie yet? I have seen it. And I think, um, you know, when... I was I go to a, a writers conference every year in New York called um, Thriller Fest, and it's it was one of the pivotal um, pivotal things in my writing career that that took me from a guy trying to figure out how to write a novel to a guy who was lucky enough to sell a couple novels. And Lee Child is one of the founders of that, and I remember sitting in a session where. Lee Child was talking about Jack Reacher, and it had been um, Jack Reacher when Tom Cruise brought the franchise in and was Jack Reacher. And that caused a lot of consternation back and forth. And Lee Child's take was, was pretty ingenious, I think, which would be my take in this. And he's like, look, 
nothing they're going to do with a movie is ever going to change that book that's sitting on your shelf. And so that book is always going to be that book. And people are just like what we were talking about before. People have different takes on the Clancy universe, different takes on characters that people, when they develop a book into a film are going to have different takes on it. And, and sometimes that means it's going to differ pretty wildly um, from the book itself. And so obviously um, the new version of um, Without Remorse didn't track um, to the book as as closely as some of the other Clancy ones. But I thought, you know what, anything that draws, they re-released Without Remorse with a new cover on it with Michael B. Jordan. And I'm a big Michael B. Jordan fan. I, I think he's a fantastic author. And in my mind, anything that draws people to that incredible work of art that was Without Remorse again, I'm in favor of. If somebody likes it, if somebody doesn't like it and thinks I'm going to pick up the book to see what that's all about, that's a win. So I think that's my philosophy on it. I think the problem that I had with it, because it introduces a lot of things, especially spoiler with the ending of sure. it, mentioning the team that we already have sure. rainbow six. I think the only problem yep. that I really had with it was not that the story wasn't good. I think that, that, uh, it was a lot of hammy acting, um, very, mm -hmm. very played up almost over the top. Uh, I guess they call it angry acting or whatever. And I think sure. toned down, I think it would have, I think it would have gone off great. I think that that was maybe off putting to some people because when you think about it, when they're used to a Tom Clancy movie, they're going to go back to Harrison sure. Ford. They're going to think about Patriot games. They're going to think sure. about, you know, all the different ones that came before it. And so I think that's what they're expecting. And so when they see this yeah. with so much in your face and so much pumped up acting, I think it maybe turns them away. So I, I agree with you sure. that if that turns them to the book so they can see what it's really about, I think that is a win, uh, especially to bring people into that Clancy universe. Sure. So let's talk about the process that it takes to get chosen to helm a Clancy book. Um, <laughs> let, let's talk about <laughs> how they go. Don, that's the guy right there. That's who we want. That's who we're going with. So there's a, I have, um, so I have to make it clear again. Um, I have never been in the special operations community. I've, I've never done that, but I have quite a few friends who are. And, and one of my friends um, was, his name's Jason Beefley. He's a retired Sergeant Major um, from Delta Force and, and spent a number of years there. And he has a, he said, there's a saying that they have that um, you're always in selection. So even though you've made it, even though you've made it to Delta Force, even though you and I'm sure you 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 know you have a um, a law enforcement background as well. I was I was on the SWAT team. Like from a much lesser standpoint, you always feel like you're trying to prove yourself, right? Even if you've made it, you're always really in selection. And so that was kind of how it was for the 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 Clancy um, gig in that I was writing um, my Matt Drake series for Tom Colgan, and and the first one was without sanction. And then the second one I wrote was called the outside man that just came out a couple months ago. And so what I didn't realize at the time is you're always in selection. And so Tom Colgan is famous for being able to choose the right authors for these franchise series. So whether it's um, the Andrews and Wilson guys who have son of um, who have, Son of Valor, which actually comes out tomorrow as well, their first book in the new series. They're doing, uh, for Tom Colgan, the W.E.B. Griffin series, or Josh Hood, who's doing the um, Robert Ludlum series. So Tom is famous for that. And so if 
and and so I think at the time when I when I wrote um, the Outside Man, uh, Mike Madden, who wrote um, the Jack Ryan Junior series before me and did a fantastic job, I think had already told Tom that he didn't want to write them anymore, and so I was in selection and didn't even realize it. And so I to to answer your question, I was fortunate enough to work with Tom already, and he liked what he saw with the Outside Man, and so. At the end of our editorial call with the outside in kind of the Columbo thing and said, I just have one more question for you. Do you want to write the Tom Clancy series? Which, you know, I, I was pretty certain I, I I had that was my inside voice talking and he hadn't said anything of the kind. But that's kind of how it was. It wasn't something I had ever anticipated I'd get to do. And frankly, I knew he was the editor for it, but as a novice I didn't know how that stuff worked. And, and to be honest with you, I was laser focused on writing my own series and would never in, in a million years have imagined that I would get that, that chance. But he's, he's a great editor in a number of different ways. And one of the, one of the ways that he's very, very good is he has his pulse constantly on all the writers out there and the series that he has and, and does this great job of balancing those out. And so when, when I turned in the outside man and he liked it and he, and he had two books of mine under his belt now. And I think understood what my writing style was like. That's when I got the opportunity to write the Clancy one. So I wish I could tell you it was some kind of master plan that I campaigned for and planned out how this was going to work, but it was the magic of working with Tom Colgan is the moral of the story, I think. So let's talk about this new one target acquired. Can you give us a brief mm -hmm. outline of the book? Man, that this is like the question that causes authors to <laughs> lay in bed at night. Like, what is my book actually about? I don't even know. And and um, this one is kind of complicated. So I'm I'm <laughs> sitting back here waiting for you to tell us. Uh, here's what I'll say is that um Jack Ryan Jr., as often happens for him, he does something which seems small at the time that spirals out of control and has um has earth shattering consequences. So when the book starts, he's in Tel Aviv, Israel and Israel, uh, I've been very fortunate for about the last nine years off and on. I've worked um, with or for Israeli companies and specifically Israeli companies who are defense companies who are bringing their technology to the U S market and in the U S um, defense market. And so I've gotten to travel to Israel several times. Tel Aviv is, is one of my favorite cities in the world. The Israeli people are incredibly kind. Um, they speak great English. They like Americans. And so I knew I wanted to set the book in Tel Aviv. And so as it starts out, Jack is doing something that's called an asset validation exercise. And so that is when I was an FBI agent, um, my job was to run and recruit sources, what we call sources in, in the law enforcement community and what folks in the intelligence community call assets. And so when you recruit somebody as a source or an asset, you're doing it because you believe that they have um, access to the information that you need. But at the same time, you're also looking at them and saying, are they suitable to be, if you're in the intelligence community, a spy, right? So you're going to ask somebody, say you recruit somebody who's, uh, you know, a member of the North Korean um, WMD program. Well, part of the of the equation is do they have access to the information i need the second part of the equation is are they trainable because if they're not the first time you task them they're going to go get themselves killed or somebody else killed and so one day one way to validate that 
is that you set up a scenario that they think is a an actual scenario when in fact it is designed solely to grade how they perform, right? How do they listen to it? Because you think in the intelligence community standpoint, you got to train somebody that can do brush passes or, or service dead drops or work the Covcom stuff you give them or any of the other things or, or, or learn how to do a surveillance detection route. Any of those things that if you're a CIA case officer, you go to the farm to learn, to learn how to become a spy, but you got to teach somebody who is a computer programmer in their real life, and suddenly they need to learn to, to learn this so that they can stay alive. And so, when the book starts, um, Jack Ryan is is helping run and Jack Ryan Jr. is helping to run an asset validation exercise in Tel Aviv. And as he's doing it, he sees this woman and child that kind of catches attention. And more than that, he sees a man with a knife that's coming up to the woman. And so, as Jack Ryan Jr. does, he moves to interdict interdict this man and stop him from uh, attacking the woman. And then that's what, what then spirals into, um, something crazy where he's trying to figure out who's targeting the woman and why before the woman inadvertently, um, unleashes the apocalypse. So very small stakes. This is kind of like a a cozy mystery basically of a Tom Clancy book. So that's what it's about. Should we say what he's doing there? Or I guess I should ask, who he's under um, a favor for. Yeah. So he's there on behalf of, of Ding Chavez. And if you go back to, like I said, I, I read um, some of the early um, Clancy books and one of the early Clancy books I read, the clear and present danger is the Ding Chavez origin story. And so I actually went back to that and thought, you know, what? wouldn't it be cool if I brought that back out? Because a lot of readers, you know, it's interesting. I think we're probably pretty close in age. And and I was a kid, you know, a teenager when I started reading the Clancy books. And so folks that are younger than me may or may not have read the original Clancy books, right? And, and have maybe started later. And so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to bring back Ding Chavez's origin story and then tie that into... Um, a current day one. And so he's actually there on behalf of Ding Chavez, who who asked him to pinch hit. And that's really, really that ask, if you will, that seems very simple. Jack takes very, very seriously because he's worked his whole life to to earn the respect of people like John Clark and Ding Chavez and, and Mary Pat Foley, who are these titans of the Clancy universe. And he feels that by Ding Chavez saying, hey, you go in my place, he's finally getting to the point where he's one of the guys and not just one of the guys because his name is Jack Ryan, right? And so it's it's this huge both honor and kind of responsibility for him to be in Israel and to do this on Ding's behalf. And that only further complicates his decision-making process when things take this crazy right turn when he meets the woman and her son. Well, and on, on to that is... He's living in kind of a large shadow, um, not just yeah. earning the respects yep. of those people that are, you know, big, big, huge characters in the Clancy world, but he's living in a huge shadow too. I mean, his father's been yep. involved in a lot of the storylines. Absolutely. And that's hard. You know, that was one of the things I spent a long time thinking about is that you, what does it feel like to be Jack Ryan's son? So here's a guy who, is the epitome of the Cincinnatus, right? Never wanted to be a, a politician, 
only became the president because of the 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 terrorist attack, or I guess you would call it a nation state attack that was dead of honor that made him president in default because the rest of the cabinet was was wiped out when, oh, by the way, a jet airplane crashes into a building and destroys it. You know, how many years before September 11th did Tom Clancy come up with that? And, and you know, this is a guy who was supposedly an analyst, but then, you know, helped steal a Russian sub and is now president of the United States and has this huge legacy and you're his son. And so what do you do with that? You know, how do you live up to, how do you, how do you, escape that trap of feeling like you have to live up to your father's legacy your entire life, number one. And then number two, kind of the other thing I explore a little bit about this book is, you know, Jack Ryan Jr. takes stock of his life and says, you know what, I've I've given up everything to get to where I am right now. And now I'm what, I'm mid thirties, you know, I've got no girlfriend, no family, no real prospects. All I have is this, and was it really worth it? Or is this even still what I want to do? And and how much of it was I did this because I wanted, because my name is Jack Ryan, right? And I want to live up to what my father is. But what does that even mean for me? And so those are a lot of things because I had the luxury of just necking down the book and focusing just on Jack Ryan Jr. that I could dive into some of that stuff that maybe hadn't, that was ground that maybe hadn't been plowed like that before. Well, speaking of that, let's talk about some of the main characters because I have a couple bones to pick with you. Um, we have <laughs> a uh, special operations team leader that is an old Apache pilot, former Apache pilot. Uh, and it it makes very clear in the book that he was a former Apache pilot. And if he can come over and do what he's supposed to do, man, this guy's like top of his game. I have a feeling that has a little bit to do with you, but after talking to you a second time about this, maybe not you, but someone you knew. Well, I mean, oddly enough, I am an Apache pilot, and there's this strange correlation that this good-looking man is also an Apache <laughs> pilot. But more than that, for 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 people who who weren't in the army, the way this actually works is that Apache pilots are kind of the apex. Um, of the army. And when you wash out of Apache school, you go to like Delta force or the green berets or something. That's kind of how it works is that now that, that part isn't true at all, but what is true is I'm glad you my said front them straight. Seater, <laughs> my front seater in Afghanistan is, you know, a dear friend of mine. And we obviously were in combat together. And when we got back um, from Afghanistan, he actually went to selection, became a Green Beret, and then became an A-team leader. And so one of the amazing things about writing a Tom Clancy book is you can grab things that have happened into your life and give your friends cameos and, and do inside jokes and Easter eggs and stuff like that. And so he was, you know, I, I told you off air that I was I was hanging out with Brad Taylor a couple of days ago and he like punched me in the face and said, an Apache pilot that's an A-team leader, really? And I was like, have I got a story for you? And so that is actually a, uh, based on a true story. So he went and became a Green Beret and was a team leader. And, and I'm quite confident that as a former Apache aviator, he brought a level of competence to special forces <laughs> that has not been seen since. That's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Well... You know, I think the best part of that story you just told was how you, uh, you know, cool bragged in there. Yeah, I was hanging out with Brad Taylor the other day. Like, <laughs> like that happens all the time. No big, no biggie. 
So, uh, go ahead. No, 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 no. That's uh, Brad Taylor is a great guy and is a former um, army guy. He and his he and his wife Elaine have been kind of big brother and sister to me um, during my writer's journey. I was I was lucky enough to meet him at Thriller Fest one year, and then we had because of the work I did with my day job, we had some mutual friends, and he. He'd been very kind to take me under his wing the last four or five years. And, and, and his wife, Elaine, is incredible, too. She she runs. There's a reason why he calls her the deputy commander of everything, because she is the one who runs the marketing forum, is, is kind of the business mind between the two of them. And so getting to know um, the two of them has been an absolute treasure. So let's talk about some of your shin bet guys. I, I, I really, um, I, I, I thought those were very cool characters and you really grow to like one of them, um, as the yeah. story goes along. And he kind of reminded me yep. of a character from your Matt Drake, um, who I'm talking mm. about, just the size, the stature, the, sure. he, he, he reminded me of that. So can we talk about a couple of the characters, the shin bet and kind of what their role yeah. is in this book? Sure. So when I was an FBI agent there, um, there was an exchange program between the FBI and the Shin Bet. And so the Shin Bet for um, those of you who don't know, and they go by a different, and one of my Israeli friends was telling me they actually go by a different name now and, and it escapes me, but their old school name is Shin Bet. And, and so the Shin Bet is the Israeli internal security service. So it's kind of their version of the FBI, if you will, but they are also, um, because Israelis grow up, a lot of them speaking, obviously, Hebrew and English, and and, and um, a good number of them speak Arabic or le- learn Arabic. What, the sh- what Shin Bet officers a lot of times will have that FBI agents don't is the language capability to interface directly with a source, right, or an asset in their standpoint. And so they do... Um, a lot of, like I said, kind of a lot of the same mission the FBI does, but with Israel, if, if you remember, if I can draw Israel right here, you have Gaza that's kind of on the west side of the country, and then the West Bank that's actually on the east side of the country. And so you have these two hot spots that are full of folks who don't particularly care for Israel or Israelis in general. And so it's the job of the Shin Bet, not so much, you know, the Israeli or the FBI, we have two massive oceans that separate us from most of our enemies, right? And so it's not, well, certainly working as an FBI agent is something that you're worried about, you know, the men and women that you're sworn to protect every single day. It also isn't like you have two enclaves that are full of folks who, if left unchecked, would be suicide bombers, would do whatever it is they would do to harm your people. And that's what Israel has. And so the Shin Bet, I think, in some ways, is maybe adopts a more aggressive stance sometimes than what the FBI does. And they have to do that because, again, Israel is, for most parts, a country that's surrounded by people who wish her ill. And so you have to adapt to that to survive. And so the Mossad is kind of the counterpart to the Shin Bet, which is um, the, the foreign intelligence service that's more closely akin to the CIA that looks outside of Israel's borders. And the Shin Bet is the, um, the entity that, that looks towards Israel's national security inside its borders. And those characters, although one of them has a pretty small role uh, as in relation sure. to the story, uh, has dire consequences for the story itself. 
Now we yeah. don't only stay there, but uh, there are other trips to to other places where uh, there sure. necessarily could start another war. Um, so they are yep. sneaking people in, and yep. What was great about that was these things that are on the fly and done in the story to kind of keep it progressing along. Um, you never mm-hmm. make it easy for your characters. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because, I mean, a very lazy way to write would be, you just give them all the equipment they need. You send them in, let them do what they do. That does not happen. Uh, they're, they're all kinds of ill-equipped and, and you watch how they have to overcome that, which was, I I thought it was great. Uh, especially the weapons that you sent with them on one mission. I was like, (laughs) they might as well have carried water guns in there. Yeah, going back to so that that same guy I talked about before, John Dixon is um, is a fantastic writer, and he told me once that protagonists and need to fail forward, and and what he meant by that is your characters need to have a bias towards action, but for the story to be compelling, what they try and do can't work, or it can't work in the way that they intend it to, and so that's part of what drives story or the main vehicle that drives story forward is conflict and conflict really happens what it really means is things don't go the way you anticipate them right and so it can be micro conflicts where hey you're late for something and you're looking for the keys and they're not where you left them and so it's something that you have to overcome that is very small in the overall confines of this of the story but the reader picks up on that it's almost like atmospheric right it means that things aren't going the way that the character wants them to go. And so that slowly ratchets up tension to, to the other extreme of that is huge consequences where you go on a mission that looks like it's locked down and then everything goes sideways and your character has to overcome it. And that's what I think as writers, and I, and I made that mistake certainly in my first couple books is you make things too easy for your character. And so when you do that, it's, excuse me, much easier to write that way because you don't have to think as much. Things progress in a linear manner. But when you do that, and and the reader probably can't necessarily even articulate why, but they fall out of the story, right? Because that conflict isn't there, that tension isn't there, that thing that they keep trying and it goes sideways. They try something else and it goes sideways. They try something else. That has to be there. That's how you get people to continue to turn the page, right? To where they get to the point where like, just one more page, just one more chapter. just And the reason why they're saying that is because things aren't going the way they're supposed to, right? If things are going well, you're like, okay, everybody's in good spot. I'm going to go to bed for tonight and I'll pick it up tomorrow. And, and that's what you have to avoid. And it's counter to everything else because the way you want to write it, the way we do things in real life is very linear. It's very predictable, right? I'm going to drive, I'm going to get my car, I'm going to start it, I'm going to drive to work, I'm going to go to work. Great day for you, horrible story. And that's the part, you know, it sounds very simple when you talk about it, but it's a lesson that usually takes a long time to learn. Because if you make things too easy for your characters, if they don't fail forward, then your readers are going to check out on you. Well, and, and when you talk about that, about the turning the page and, and not everything going well, yep. that mission that I'm talking about, it ends one chapter. That's what was so great. It, it, you get to the end of one chapter and everything's good. And on like three words, the whole story changes. 
<laughs> yeah, and there are some, you know, those are lessons I've learned from the great writers or, or folks like I, my favorite um, living author right now is Daniel Silva. And there's in, in the book, um, the name of the book where he does this escapes me, but there's a scene in one of his books in which his main characters like Gabriel Allen and this Russian thug has um, Gabriel Allen's wife and you think she's going to be executed. And it's in, in, in from a high level, you know, it's like, okay, the good guy's trying to stop the bad guy and the bad guy's doing something else. But the way he does it is such magic like that. I, you know, people talk about you couldn't breathe. Like I had to put the book down while I was reading it because I was hyperventilating. And, you know, and as a writer, you're like, how did he do that? Like, how did he grab me so hard in something that I know in my mind, I could just close this book and set it down. But I'm literally afraid to do that because I want to turn the page and then I'm terrified about what the page is going to say when I'm going to turn it. Right. And so I think, you know, some of that is great characterization. Some of it is, um, you know, pacing and everything. But some of it is the way that he writes paragraphs or the way that he only, you know, he finishes it with three words or something. And, and, and those three words have more punch than an entire paragraph. And so that's when. When people ask me, like, how do I get better as a writer? I'm like, you got to read the people who are writing the stuff you wish you would write. And you read it once as a reader. And then you go back and you read it as a writer. And you tear that apart. And you figure out this scene, what did he or she do here? Like, what is it from a structural perspective that kept me riveted? How? And that's the way you get better is you got to look at it's. It's almost like the difference between looking at a house and then looking at the blueprints to show you how the house was built. Like if you're ever going to build a house like that, you got to look at the blueprints and figure out what they did there. Well, and with you saying that, I, I, like I said, I think you did that in some of these chapters where, where on one chapter, everything is good. And at the very, 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 I'm talking last three words, the whole next <laughs> chapter is completely different. Also, I want to point out, I think last time we talked, we said that we would not mention those first couple books anymore. Uh, those are, <laughs> I think we They're said dead. We, we wouldn't mention those. Let's talk a little bit about your bad guy. Uh, I don't want to say too much yeah. because this is kind of a, I, the way I took him was a kind of a homegrown bad guy um, with yeah. kind of worldly endeavors, but a very homegrown bad guy. Yeah. I think that's accurate. Um, it's always hard crafting a bad guy. And a lot of times there are people who, who are much better writers than I am who can start with this bad guy in, um, and, he's, and he or she is fully formed from the moment they start writing, right? What I tend to do is as I'm writing the book, the bad guy grows in stature and you start to figure out more stuff about him and you start to – because that's another little secret is that for your protagonist to be great, your bad guy has to be as great or greater. And, and so that's another kind of beginning writer um, mistake is that you have this fantastic protagonist, but there's nobody worthy in the story for them to fight against, right? When, as they're doing the failing forward. And so, and this time I had an idea, I wanted to write, you know, the whole take of the book from the asset validation exercise to what happens with the Shimbet to, had a very much of an intelligence feel to it. And so I wanted 
my bad guy to be a, a um, an espionage operative, you know, somebody who who worked in that world, who was, you know, the counterpart to Jack Ryan and what he was doing. And so I had an idea of what that was going to be when it started. And then they grew as the story grew and I needed them to be, you know, the worthy adversary to Jack Ryan. And so I, I appreciate you say that. And it was very much an iterative, like where that, where that person started on ja- draft one versus where they started in the final draft was a completely different, um, completely different character, a, a much more developed, much more, different because the other thing that's very hard to do too is you don't want you don't want to have the stock bad guy right the 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 guy in the black hat and mask that comes on a stage and so part of that is figuring out ways to make them different but still formidable and so for me anyway I got I have to do that I write organically and as I go from draft to draft I'm starting to understand more about all of the characters and the antagonist in general and so he was he was very much something who who grew in stature from draft to draft to what he ended up becoming. Yeah, and and like I said, a, a homegrown. It's it's almost a scary thing to look at how because you touch on a backstory on him and everything. Yeah. Um, how yeah. he came to be who he was, and you know, yeah, yep. I think it's very relevant in today, and that kind of segues into the next thing some of this storyline seems very much ripped out of the headlines. Um, I don't know yeah, if you meant to do that or if it just all kind of crashed together, but uh, I'm thinking of the restaurant scene with the rocket is like, yep. Yep. That was, so the iron dome plays pretty heavily in this story as you alluded it to. And that was an idea I had for some time. Cause I'd always been fascinated by the iron dome and, and how it completely changed the balance of the power um, in Israel, that that there was no longer a nation that was being held hostage by these Katusa rockets that the Iranians had helped Hamas or somebody else build. And then you saw what happened, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. And, and like I alluded to before, um, the company I, I worked for was an Israeli company. And two of my Israeli counterparts were actually in the States when Hamas started uh, the last rocket barrage in Israel. And they're sitting in the conference room with me and their phones are pinging and they're showing me video that their son or daughter is standing on the front porch taking of rockets arcing over Tel Aviv and then the interceptors reaching to do it. And just like that mentality, I, first of all, I, I couldn't imagine sitting in Europe or something like that and my you know 14-year-old daughter shooting me a WhatsApp of rockets arcing over the house um, that are hopefully being intercepted. But just that whole um, whole sequence, you know, one of the one of the um, videos went viral where there are literally like hundreds of rockets overhead that are being intercepted. It looks like, you know, you're like I said, we're about that same age. And you remember that old Atari game missile command, right, where all the missiles (laughs) are coming in. I mean, and that's literally what it looked like. And and it's, you know, innocent men and women that are sitting there watching the night sky light up as the Iron Dome is is doing its its level best to take down the hundreds of Hamas rockets that are streaking into Tel Aviv and Israel. And so it was, you know, when you see something like that happen, as, as you allude to, our job as writers, and especially techno-thriller writers, is to look at how the world is and predict what could go wrong with it and write a story about it. And so there's some 
some sense of fulfillment of, okay, I guess I was thinking along the right lines of that one. And then there's also a sense of horror of, man, that was certainly something I never wanted to be in the position that friends of mine are showing me videos of what's happening in real time or what I put in my book. Like it was, it was surreal and it was horrifying. And, and like you said, with everything that's going on over there and with this, there was definitely some stuff uh, when you talk about taking video of it, you know, on the phone mm-hmm. and then sending it out. Yep. The best way I could describe it to people is people that live in like Florida or people that live in Oklahoma that, that stay around when the hurricanes are coming or stay around when the tornadoes yep. are coming. Now there's a huge difference in a natural disaster. And of course yep. the rocket attacks, but the best way I can describe it is just standing there, not going anywhere. So used to it. Yeah. And so I, I think people yep. feel a lot safer with the iron dome. Uh, and, and it yep. is a fantastic thing to watch uh, it knock these things yep. down. Um, so when I ask you about, do you pull some of that? Is there something in the future, um, with you and the Clancy universe where you're seeing right now in the news, um, or something that's happening in the world where you see it shifting in your next Clancy book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've already started talking with, um, Tom Colgan a little bit about ideas I had, um, for, for where to take this next and what the next book could look like and, and potentially what the next several um, books could look like. And so you're always, you know, as a writer um, in this genre, you have to read pretty voraciously. And there are things that you look at. I think it helps somewhat too, um, having been in the military before, and, and many of us were, you know, Brad Taylor was, Jack Carr was, I was, Josh Hood was, Andrews and Wilson there's an aspect in, in the military, in the army anyway, it's called the military decision-making process. And so what happens is when you come up with a tactical plan, there's this process that you go through. And from a staff perspective, the S3, which is the operations person, plans the blue force or the good guys. And then the S2, who's the intelligence person, puts on the enemy hat. And his or her job is literally to be the enemy force commander and plan how they are going to react to whatever the friendly plan is that you're doing. And so all of us who were staff officers either served as an S2 at one point or worked within that cell. And so it's kind of like your brain gets trained to look at what's happening in the world and imagine what a bad guy would do with that. And so it, it becomes very, very useful as an author where you're reading what's happening in China right now or what's happening in North Korea or what's happening in Pakistan or the Ukraine or any of those things and saying, huh, if I was a bad guy, this is how I would leverage that. And so, you know, you kind of grab hold of that and throw it in the research folder and think about that as you're finishing the book that you're doing, because one of those things is going to be your next story arc and there's probably some likelihood of that. You know, people talk before that, hey, thriller writers or thriller writers in this genre, they beat the headlines. I'm like, you're not really beating the headlines. You're just doing that thing you've been trained to do where you're looking at the world and then putting yourself in the enemy's position and saying, if I was a bad guy, this is how I would take advantage of that situation. And a lot of times that's what actually happens. I mean, I remember, you know, after September 11th, if you look at Brad Thor's book, um, books, a lot of times in his bio, he talks about how he was a member 
of a red cell. And all a red cell is, is it's a planning cell that does contingencies of what ifs. And so sometime, I believe it was after September 11th, they gathered a bunch of these writers together and said, you know, because Tom Clancy had been spot on about the danger that a passenger airliner could pose, they said, hey, what else aren't we thinking of? What are the other ways that, you know, terrorists could leverage anything against us? If they could use something as simple as a jet airplane to bring down a building, what are, the, what are our other blind spots right now? And that's what you're doing all the time as a writer is saying, what can I use? Or if I was a bad guy, what would I use and what would the blind spots be? And to me, the Iron Dome was a very obvious choice because it, it, it functions in such an incredible manner that, as you alluded to before, many Israelis, especially before this, maybe not so much now after the the you know horrible um, Hamas attack and everything, but before this, there was almost a sense of complacency, right? That says, "Hey, there's going to be rockets coming overhead, but the Iron Dome's really good and it'll take care of them." Well, what if something went wrong and the Iron Dome didn't function the way it was supposed to? What would happen next? That kind of scenario or that scenario is what launched me into Target Acquired. And so, where do you come up with these ideas? Because I don't really want to talk about what the main kind of thing yep. that everyone's looking for in the book, but how do you come up with ideas for that? Is it something that you're reading about? Is it something that's been brought up or you're just talking to some of your military buddies? How do you come up with ideas like that? Yeah, all of the above. And so the, so for instance, the opening of target acquired, the prologue has a, um, a special forces, a team, two green berets that are sitting in a, in a sniper hide site and they're observing a compound. And that compound, um, they think, might be inside a cult leader who um, is potentially has apocalyptic ambitions inside that cult. Well, that that story actually came from a friend of mine who was a master sergeant in 5th Special Forces Group. And back in 2007, if you Google, there was a cult, a Shia cult in Iraq called the Soldiers of Heaven cult that actually existed um, that may or may not have received funding from the Iranian Quds Force that he was in an operation um, to try and neutralize. And so, you know, he was telling me that story for something else. And as he was talking about it, I'm like, man, that's really interesting. I got to find a place for that somewhere. And so that ended up becoming, like you said, kind of the opening scene for Targeted Acquired and kind of pivotal to the plot therein. And so some of it is the people I talk to, some of it, like I said, are stories or some kind of random things that come together that your subconscious connects and kind of all of the above. And you have to be, for me anyway, I remember talking with or hearing Brad Taylor talk about when he wrote two books a year for a while, somebody asked him, hey, did you ever have to um, redo the plot or did you ever have to? And he's like, no, I didn't have time to do it because I was writing two books a year. And he said, so once I decided on a threat vector and what the plot was going to be. I stayed with that and wrote until I finished. I write more organically. And so a lot of times where I, where I start, where I, where, where I think I'm going to isn't where I end up. And so some of that comes from things I'm reading or stories I've heard or something like that, or kind of connection my mind makes when I'm doing it. And so it can be terrifying when you're in the middle of it, because, you know, there's times where and I was you know, going through some of that today when I was writing Hostile Intent, where I'd gotten to a point. I'm like, I cannot for the life of me figure out where it goes from here. 
And, and, and so you, you start to come up with strategies for that and to start to trust yourself that, hey, I've written three books this way before. I'm going to figure it out. I got to just keep working at it. And so some of that comes from being comfortable and familiar, I guess, with your process of, as a writer. But to answer your question, it's kind of all of the above for me. In, in that, when, when you talk about that when, with the organic writing, I, I saw someone, you were going back and forth in a conversation, and someone said, man, I can't wait until you drop your third Matt Drake, or I hope you drop your third Matt Drake book this year. And you were like, whoa, take it easy. I've already dropped two books this year. I could only do so much. Yeah. So I guess that would be the question. How much is too much? So that, that's a very interesting question, too. I think... Um, certainly you can write, I think, I think what you have to guard against is that in it, especially if you're writing more than one book a year, is that what you have often default to that feels familiar or feels safe is because you've done it before. And so that can be at a micro level where if you do in a particular fight scene and you get the guy in the rear naked choke hold and you do and, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's how it would flow. Well, the reason why it flows that way is you did it two scenes before, and that's why it's flowing so easily. Um, and so I think you have to watch out that what you're doing or what feels familiar isn't something that you've already done before. At the same time, I was listening. So Mark Greeny is incredibly productive, right? He does it seems like even he does um two books a year, sometimes two and a half books. And so when I heard him talk about it before, he's like, look, my goal is a certain word count every day. And I think his word count is like 2000 words or something like that. Well, if you write, <laughs> you know, a 140,000 word book, which is a monster of a book, that's still only a little more than two months writing if you were writing every day or something. Right. Obviously, it ends up being more with that and rewrites and stuff. But I think my point being is that if you get into the mentality of this is a job like any other job and my output is x then you meet that output and if it becomes two books a year it's two books a year if it becomes two and a half books a year it's two and a half books a year and as you're meeting that output you're staying true to i'm not taking the easy way out i'm not defaulting into you know something that is familiar because i've done it before and it becomes um it becomes repetitious. And so I think it's a balance for all of that things. I think you have to decide as a writer what you're comfortable. You know, Mark Graney's word output every day certainly isn't mine. And, and you know, maybe Stephen King writes even more words a day than Mark Graney does. And so I think some of it is figuring out what your limit is as a writer, but then staying true to that and saying, you know what, I'm not going to, I'm going to treat this like any other job. I'm not going to to half step it because I don't have a deadline yet. I'm going to continue to write these words and, and believe that they're going to find a home at some point. And so I think, and, and honestly, like I'm still trying to figure all that out um, myself, quite frankly. And so, but that's kind of my thought process behind it is that if I stick to this word count a day and it comes out to this much a year, well, then that's how much it comes out. And as long as I'm staying true and being diligent in the writing process, then then I should be okay. At least that's the theory. You can ask me again next year when hostile intent comes out. I might have no hair left after that. We'll see. 
So someone put in the comments, that was me that asked you my thing, LOL. I said, I hope it's this year. Now I know why it takes time. So let me ask you one more question to the process. Yeah. And it kind of follows up on all of this. Do you ever worry about bleed over? Yeah, you mean from like um, the Matt Drake series to the Tom Clancy, or you mean from Just like where, book to book? Well, I I guess we could take it in both directions on there. Mainly what mm-hmm. I meant was when you're writing so much and you're writing two different characters that you have said that yep. you try and make them different characters, do you ever worry yep. that your brain just kind of shuts down and you start bleeding over into the stories or maybe lose focus or direction of where you're going with them? Or maybe the stories yeah. kind of seem the same. Do you ever worry about that? Yeah. So again, I talk about um, Mark Graney and Brad Taylor a lot because they were both very kind when I got the opportunity to write two books a year to let me pick their brains for it. And what both of them agreed on, at least from their perspective, is is neither one of them could work on two books at the same time. So what? So if you had, for instance, if you're if you were supposed to write two books a year, that still meant you write one in six months and then you write the next one in six months. And that, from their perspective, that helped you not bleed one story into another, whether it's the same series or a different series or anything, because those were two completely separate things. You finished this book and then you started writing on the other one. And another thing Mark told me that I've now had to do in my own life too, is he said, you know, for him, it was a trap to ever think, Hey, this is a really good idea, but I'm going to hold it to the next book that I'm going to write later. I'm not going to use it. This, And he's like, when you get that idea, use it in this book and trust yourself that when it's time for the next book, you'll have another idea just as great as that one. Right. And so those two things I think help from uh, Hey, is this a Tom Clancy thing I'm pulling on now? Is it a Matt Drake thing? It is whatever book I'm writing right now. That's what it is. And then when I go to write the next book, I got to believe that future Don, that's what my agent Barbara Powell will talk. And he's like, Oh, future Don will solve that problem. And I'm like, well, that would be great if future Don told present Don how he's going to solve that one, because I don't have any clue. But I think that's part of it, right, is having the faith that your future self is going to figure out something that's just as compelling as what your present one is. I think the second part of it from a more tactical series to series, it helps me a lot that Matt Drake is a first person point of view protagonist and um Jack Ryan Jr. is the third person. So in my brain, Matt's voice is very, very different from Jack's voice, even though, as you alluded to before, some of my writing style is the same between of it. Their voices are very, very different. And that helps me, from a character perspective, keep them um, being very, very different. But you have to, and this is what another Brad Taylor lesson is, you know, kind of going back to what we said before about not doing what what says – what feels familiar, you know, Brad's take is that you can only do something once in each book, right? So if you have a fight scene in a bar, you can't have another fight scene in a bar. If you have a gunfight in a car, you can't. And so that too helps you segregate in your mind. This has already been done before. I have to figure out a new way to do it and, and, and progress through the entire book that way. And then hopefully there's a wall that comes down and says, okay, now that's done. 
Now I got to go to the, to the new one and it's a blank slate again that I get to build on as I work through the book. So let's talk about uh, some of your other books. Uh, I want to break away from this yeah. one. We'll come back around to it in the end. But let's talk about some of your other stuff. You mentioned Matt Drake. You mentioned that uh, he's in a different kind of person, point of view. Um, yep. And they really are in the same genre, but they're written very differently than each other. So yep. let's let's talk about um, the differences that you think between a Matt Drake and a, a Jack Ryan Jr., yeah. So first of all, they have the two characters have completely different backgrounds. So Matt Drake is a um, veteran of the Army Ranger Regiment. So he was an infantry officer and then a company commander um, in the Ranger Regiment. And he is a case officer for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And so his job is to run and recruit assets, much like it. In some ways, he had the same job that I had when I was an FBI, coincidentally, when I was an FBI special agent, but he does it for the intelligence community. Um, Jack Ryan Jr. works for an off the books. Um, and, and I'll say that, you know, Matt Drake follows the, the typical trajectory of people in the DIA or people in the military that, you know, you're commissioned as a infantry officer first. He did his time uh, in the Ranger Regiment, then was recruited for DIA, went to the farm, became a case officer. Traditional track for somebody in DIA and specifically somebody in the intelligence community. Jack Ryan Jr. is um, kind of the opposite from that in a lot of different ways. So he works for this off-the-books um, intelligence agency called the Campus. He was a civilian beforehand. He never served in the military. Now he had because of who his father was, access to people like John Clark and Ding Chavez and Mary Pat Foley. But he was very much somebody on the civilian side who was recruited originally into the campus to be, to do like financial analyst work and stuff like that and scrapped his way and worked his way over to the paramilitary side. And so his training, he never went to the farm. He never had you know, the formal military path or the special operations path or the case officer path that Matt Drake did. And so while he does, um, obviously both of them work in a paramilitary capacity, both of them work within kind of the intelligence community, bigger umbrella, their pathways are very, very different. Um, their personalities are very, very different. And I think their heritage and, and kind of legacies are very, very different. And that's kind of helps me keep story straight um, when I craft a what's a Matt Drake story versus what's a Jack Ryan Jr. story. We have another question uh, that says, what makes you choose first or third person writing? Is one easier than the other? So my first two books I wrote that didn't sell were third person. And we um, don't talk about those. Don. I, How many times do I got to say they're dead to me? They're dead to me. No. Um, they were third person, and then I got a hold of Nelson DeMille. And so Nelson DeMille is a fantastic writer and writes a number of great books. But one of his series has a guy named John Corey, who's a New York um, police detective, and it's written from a first-person point of view and is very witty. And I remember the first one where John Corey makes an appearance is a book called Plum Island, which is a fantastic book. And I remember getting to the end of Plum Island and I told my wife, I'm like, I would read about John Corey going to the gas station because he's so much fun to be around. He's so funny. 
And so one of the, the things that somebody smart, and usually when somebody smart tells me something, I attribute it to Nick Petrie because he's a really smart guy. And so I don't know if Nick actually said this or not, but somebody told me when I was trying to break in as a writer that what you need to do is bring something that's the same but different to the genre. So the same in that your book, um, if you're writing what I write, that your book should be shelved along with Brad Taylor and Mark Greeny and and uh, Andrews and Wilson and everybody else, but different in that, you know, Brad Taylor already writes a really good Brad Taylor book. There, there isn't anybody else who needs to write a Brad Taylor book. What are you going to bring that's different than what's out there already? And so when I read Nelson DeMille, I started reading a bunch of the other, like Brad Thor and Vince Flynn and Daniel Silva, and many of these other folks write in third person. And so I thought, you know, I'm not as funny as Matt is because when Matt talks, I can spend all the time in the world coming up with the punchline and, and necking it down so that it's perfect. But there are some certain aspects of the way Matt talks and acts that are very much mine. And I'm like, I think I could write that voice and it would be the same but different. And so I intentionally wrote um, my, my third book, which was the first one where Matt sort of made an appearance. And then my fourth book, which is Without Sanction That Sold, writing a protagonist with first person point of view. Now, there's a danger in writing first-person point of view because it's very, very close to the reader. So if the reader doesn't like it, say you think Matt isn't terribly funny or he's whiny or sarcasm isn't your thing, it's going to turn your, you off. And you're going to shut that book and you're not going to care anymore because that voice annoys you and you don't want to read it anymore. So that's kind of the crapshoot of writing first-person. Um, Third-person also in in – Without sanction, it's multiple points of view. And so Matt is first person and everybody else is third. Um, third person is a much more common one. And uh, it allows you, since first person is so close to the reader, it can be harder to do suspense or to hide things from the reader because the narrator knows everything. So you have to work some different tricks. In third person, you don't have to worry about that because it's third person point of view but you can lose that uniqueness of your voice. So it really depends. There's, there's not a right or wrong answer. What I would say is you have to, as a writer, figure out how do you bring that same but different? What is it that you do that same but different? And if it's voice, you know, try that. Try writing first person. See how it works for you. If it doesn't work for you, then maybe go third person. But there's no right or wrong um, reason. And I experimented with both before I settled on one. So in talking about your older books, uh, which they're really not that that much older, um, except for the ones that we have chosen not to talk about anymore, uh, Without Sanction <laughs> was nominated by the International Thriller Writers uh, as Best First Book, correct? Yeah, yeah, it was a huge honor. Wow. Huge honor. The the um, when when folks ask me, hey, what what was it that helped you in your writing career? There There are two things. And so one was going back and, and getting an MFA and meeting great critique partners and learning more about my craft. The second was going to Thriller Fest. And I talked about it before, you know, Lee Child and Steve Barry and Gail Lenz and a bunch of uh, Heather Graham, a bunch of fantastic writers form this. And so you can, you can go to Thriller Fest in New York and the top editors and agents and writers in the world are there. And you can literally... I think the first time I met, it was the first time I met Brad Taylor was at Thriller Fest and I talked to him and then 
you know, bought him a beer and we talked about writing and stuff. And so for the price of beer, you can get a master's class in writing. And so that really was um, an inflection point in my writing career because suddenly I got to interact with folks who were further along in the writing journey than I was and could tell me not theoretical. Here's what I think you need to do. It's here's what I did to actually get where I am right now. And so one of the things the ITW, the International Thriller Writers do, who are the sponsors of Thriller Fest, is they put on an awards thing every year. And man, I've been to the awards banquet is is fantastic. It's kind of like the Oscars or Emmys for for awards and or for writers. And so, you know, I've gone to that many, many times before to see, you know, Ann Perry was was there one year, you know, George R. R. Martin was there one year. And you get these luminary, incredible writers and stuff. And then to get nominated by these folks for my first novel, um, Without Sanction, really is just a mind-numbing um, honor. And so incredibly, incredibly humbled by that. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's awesome. And, and is there like a best second book? Because I think The Outside Man will definitely be <laughs> up for that one. Uh, so I appreciate it when, when you're nominated for something like that. Is there something that your supporters can do? Is there a place they can vote? Is there a place they can go put their input or is it just chosen by those people? So, so the ITW, the board members, um, select or, or narrow down the nominees. And then I think, I think it, you have to be an ITW member, um, to vote. And so, um, the, the voting goes on leading up to that. So unfortunately not, you, um, you, you can't vote for me. I don't think unless you're an ITW member, but I should probably know the answer to that question. I mean, it might help you if, if just anybody can <laughs> vote, I mean, or if we have to put on like a fake yeah. mustache and glasses and pretend we're part of the, <laughs> the group. So, uh, last time you were on the show, uh, you failed miserably at eighties. Now we know how much you love eighties ah, stuff. Comes. Yeah. We know there how much you love eighties stuff here. And I always want to not make you look bad, but I really want to make you yeah. stand your ground on your eighties stuff. So yeah. I've, yeah. I've got some more questions for you. These are not going to be movie quotes, but they are going to involve the eighties and we're going to see how okay. well you do to possibly redeem yourself before we kind of wrap this up. It's a lot of pressure right now. Okay. It's a lot of pressure. First question in the golden child, what object does the child animate to amuse his captor? I got nothing. Okay. It's a Coke nothing. can. We are, you know what? All right. We're going to do this. We're, we're getting, <laughs> we're going to get at least two of these. If I have to mouth the answers to you. All right. Number two, which computer is listed in the Guinness world records as the highest selling singer computer model of all time. Would that the be 80s. the Commodore 64? That's exactly right. Okay. Which Madonna song first hit the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 in 1983? Like a Virgin. Holiday. <laughs> so close. So close. <laughs> okay. Which brand of running shoes did Run DMC make popular by featuring them in their music video, Walk This Way? Adidas. That's exactly right. Yes! All right. See, we're doing much better on these. 
All right. We spoke a lot about technology in this interview. What was the weight yep. of the first commercial U.S. cell phone? Now, you got to remember, thanks Saved by the Bell, man. Yeah, they were big. I'd say uh, five pounds. Two pounds. Yeah. Uh, we'll, 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 we'll let you slip two on of them. Two of them would be five pounds, right? Two there you go. Five pounds. Right. Well, two and a half. Uh, <laughs> all right. So what was the original script? Now, this is going to be a movie quote, so I hope you get it. What was the original <gasps> script for I'll Be Back in the Terminator movies? What was the original script? What you was he like originally original supposed to say? No, what was he originally supposed uh, to say? Oh, uh, I don't know what he was originally supposed to say. I've never heard that before. What was he originally supposed to say? I'll come back. <laughs> I'll come back. That's James that's Cameron, though. James Cameron, Terminator flicks, Aliens, The Abyss. He kind of ruled the 80s. He did. Ruled the 80s. He did. Uh, that was very lazy writing, though, and I think you would agree with me. You're a writer. I'll Come Back is very lazy. <laughs> I'll Be Back is much better. All right. What book spent 55 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list in the 1980s? Uh, I'm going to go with um, First Blood by David Morrell. Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. I liked First Blood a lot better. You should change that answer. <laughs> You know what? We're going to go with yours. That's weird. I, you know what? I read it wrong. It is First Blood. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank I'm you. sorry. Uh, when did Steve Jobs first get fired from Apple computers? So I didn't think that was in the 80s. I thought that was in the 90s where he got fired. Um, did he get fired in the 80s too? He did. He I don't did. think he did. I, what year? What year was it? 85. Really? Because 84, wasn't that when they had their, uh, the dude comes in and throws the freaking hammer at the screen and yeah, shatters they, it? they wasn't did the 84? George Orwell 84 thing. That was, yeah, for, George Orwell, uh, that was for the Olympics, right? Yeah. The Olympics yeah, yeah. or Super Bowl, I can't remember. Yeah. All right. In huh. what year did massive protests on either side of the Berlin Wall eventually lead to it being torn down? I think it was 88. Is that right? 89. Ah! Yeah, because Reagan was out. It was George Bush. Reagan said, And, and he made that famous speech, Mr. Gorbachev. Yeah. Uh, tear, tear down, down that wall. wall. Yeah. Yes. Uh, which Sony product transformed music culture in 1980? The Walkman. That's exactly right. Did you ever have one of those piece of shit CD I ones did. that skipped everywhere you went? Yes. I had one that was the one you carried, and then they got super cool and get had the one that you could put in your car, and you would plug it into like your tape deck or something like that. But then it would still every the, time the car bounced, it the, would skip yep. all over the place. Now my brother had this really cool jean jacket growing up in the eighties, mm -hmm. and you could zip off the sleeves. One, number two, <laughs> it had a pocket for a Walkman with a hole in the top for the wires to come out for the headphones. Wait, wait until you hear this next part. And the other pocket on the other side was for cassette tapes. You could put three cassette tapes in yes. the pocket face up. Yes. Yes. You're um, you're it was you said it was your cousin that had this? It was my brother. Your brother. And did you ever borrow this from him? Oh yeah. 
<laughs> oh yeah, uh, wore it no sleeves. Uh, you know. Yeah, I was. Uh, I don't know if I told you, but I was super cool back then. Of course, of yeah. course. Even did more you have than parachute now. pants, though. Yeah. Did you have parachute pants? Yes. I did. Yeah, I did. All right. One last question. What notable branding did Nike launch in 1988? What notable branding did Nike launch? Uh, it wasn't Air Jordans, was it? It was actually Just Do It. Just Do It. I didn't realize that was 1988. Huh. A lot happened in the 80s. I guess. I'm telling you, that that was the year. So let's talk about a couple more things, Don, real quick. You did much better on this one. So I guess we should not go to movie quotes next time. Uh, we should just <laughs> stick to general trivia questions. So let's talk about DonBentley.com. Uh, I want to talk about the newsletter. Yep. And then what people can find there. So go ahead. Yeah, so it's donbentleybooks.com. And um, if you go there, you can find a newsletter. And that is where we do contests and and cover reveals and information about um, upcoming books and all that kind of good stuff. So if you just click there, you'll get asked to join the newsletter. Um, it also has... All the news and events stuff. So, you know, my my um, book tour, all the virtual events and stuff this week, you can sign up. And then it's got information about each one of the books, the Without Sanction, The Outside Man, and Target Acquired, and, and how you can um, purchase one of those should you so desire. So, donbentleybooks.com. It's D-O-N-B-E-N-T-L-E-Y books.com. And let's talk real quick about your virtual tour. Now, I've written down everything. So yep. uh, June 8th, you already had one tonight with uh, Jack Carr. He's only slightly less popular than me, but I'm glad that you saved the best <laughs> for last. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, make sure you tell him that. Uh, June 8th, Brad Taylor. Uh, it's going to be Facebook Live, 8 yep. p.m. Central Standard, 6 p.m. Um, that would be Pacific Standard. Or No, I'm sorry. That would be... Uh, yeah, that would be yeah, I think that's Pacific, right. yeah. Yep. Uh, June 9th with Brian Andrews and Jeffrey Wilson uh, on a Crowdcast. They are part of the Tier 1 books. That's going to be 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, June 10th with yep. Mark Cameron. He was also part of the Jack Ryan series, Jack Ryan Senior Series, correct? Yep, still uh, is. He's still writing them, that's right. And that will be a Zoom at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, June 11th with Bill Schweigert. Uh, he is the Devil's Colony. Uh, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. That is going to be a Facebook Live and a YouTube Live. And June 22nd with Mark Graney, who you talk about a lot, the Gray Man series. Mm -hmm. uh, looks like 7 yep. p.m. Central Standard Time, and it's going to be a Crowdcast. So is there anywhere that they need to go particularly to find the Crowdcast, to find the Zoom, anything like that? Sure. So if you go to donbentleybooks.com and you click on the news and events link, all of those are listed right there. And you can actually click on, uh, there's a hyperlink for each event that you can click to sign up for. And uh, I would love to see you at any of those events. Yeah. So going back to this book, Target Acquired, a five-star review. It's an all-out pedal to the metal, full tilt sprint from beginning to end, propelled forward with 40,000 pounds of thrust from the afterburners of an F-35. 
Guys, this book is spectacular. You can pick it up. Amazon, Apple Books, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, Books A Million, Google Play, Audible. You can go to donbentleybooks.com and look for it there. You can find up all the updates at donbentleybooks.com. Don, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. I know you're super busy. Guys, if you want more of me, find me on Twitter at DoublespeakDJ, on Facebook at the DTD Podcast, and on YouTube at the DTD Podcast, where all of these are the video versions of the podcast. You can check them out every week. Remember, you stop by here because the best stories are true, and we bring them to you. Don, thank you again, man. It's such an honor to talk to you and help you launch these books. Uh, I, I can't think of uh, a better way to spend my time. Thank you again. That's Don. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. We'll see you later.